This is No Politics at the Dinner Table, and I'm Amit Prakash. This is a unique week because Tony had some issues uh, with uh, access, as happens in New Orleans with that weather. Um, so it's going to be me and a fantastic guest, Rashid Khalidi, probably the most prominent historian of the Palestine question living today. So um, listen up. Uh, you're going to learn a lot on this one. Okay, so today we're so excited to have Professor Rashid Khalidi, a historian of the Middle East um, and the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. He's the author of many books, uh, including Brokers of Deceit, How the U.S. Has Undermined the Peace in the Middle East, 2013, Sewing Crisis, American Dominance and the Cold War in the Middle East, published in 2009, Resurrecting Empire, Western Footprints and America's Perilous Path in the Middle East, 2004, and Palestinian Identity, the Construction of Modern National Consciousness in 1996, um, published in 1996. And he, today he's going to be speaking to us about his brand new book, came out in 2020, Years War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017. So uh, Rashid, thank you so much for being here today and congratulations on the book. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Great. Um, so... I finished the book over the weekend and I was really blown away by it. Um, unlike your other books and a lot of academic history in general, what comes through is how much the history of this conflict has not only shaped your life, but also the lives of several generations of your family. Um, mm -hmm. And now there's so many entry points into the book, obviously, you know, the six, six at least, right? Uh, the six wars that you talk about. Um, mm -hmm. But um, I want to talk a little bit about why this history is controversial. Um, mm -hmm. And I've experienced this very directly, you know, working with you, uh, if you recall, the David Project back in when the early uh, days at Columbia. Uh, but w I wanted to start with a couple of anecdotes and just have you sort of react. So when the mm -hmm. last time I saw you, um, it was when I had invited you to speak at a private school that I taught at at Brooklyn. And mm -hmm. as soon as it got out that you were speaking, we were given word that we could not have you speak without a Jewish advocate of the Israeli position. Right. And now we could have had that speaker without you, but we couldn't have you without that speaker. Of course. Right? So yeah. that's one. The second anecdote, and this is at another private school, this time in Manhattan more recently, um, I was teaching a history class. I gave a geography quiz, and two students came up to me angrily after the quiz uh, and demanded to know why I had put Israel slash Palestine on the map because, and I'm quoting one of them here, I remember this very well, there is no such thing as Palestine. Right. Um, so why is this history so controversial, and what do you think is going to be controversial about this book? Well, why the history is controversial, you sort of summed up in your little, in the anecdote you just told us, um, whereby a student said there's no such thing as Palestine. Um, this history is controversial because there was an attempt, as in every settler colonial endeavor, to replace one people with another. And it was essential as part of that project, not just that the people be moved, which most of them were from the territory of what became Israel. 
but also that their name be forgotten. The place, the place names, the memory of their presence. Uh, 400 villages are demolished after 1948. And when people pass through the forests or the, or the nature preserves or whatever that were created in their place, people say, these are ancient ruins. Nobody says people were driven out of their homes. These homes were demolished so that we could take it over only 70 odd years ago. These are ancient ruins. So elimination of a people is not really complete and its replacement with another people, which is what the Zionist project was trying to do. It was trying to turn an Arab country, an overwhelming Arab majority, into a Jewish state, as Theodore Herzl said at the beginning. When you say these things, people are offended. When you say something that every early Zionist recognized, that this is a settler colonial project, the mainland purchasing agency was called the Jewish colonization agency. This is not some anti-Semitic slur. It's how they described themselves. Um, when you say this, however, it causes all kinds of cognitive dissonance because it contradicts tales that have been told to children uh, from when they're very little and which are reinforced by biblical narratives and which are very uh, omnipresent, omniprevalent, if you want, in our societies, um, which tell a completely different story. This is the rebirth of the Jewish people in their ancient homeland. This was always theirs. God gave this land, the, 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 the song from Exodus, this land is our land, God gave this land to us. Most people believe that. And in that, in that fairy tale, the Palestinians don't exist and shouldn't exist. If they do, they shouldn't. They have no place there. They're transient. They're, they happen to have been there for 1,600, 1,820, whatever, hundreds, thousands of years, but they shouldn't have been there. There's only one people there. Um, and for Israelis, uh, uh, this is done very bluntly. I mean, Israel passed what is called the Jewish nation state law in 2018, right. which said there's only one people with the right to self-determination here. Um, American, American supporters of Israel are squeamish about some of that overt Jewish supremacy doctrine. Right. They prefer to believe a bunch of much more subtle and softer myths, uh, Jewish and democratic. Well, if it's a Jewish state with supremacy for one people, then it's not, cannot be a fully democratic state. Citizens are not equal. There's no equality. Um, and that is enshrined in dozens and dozens of Israeli, that inequality, system, systemic inequality for Israeli citizens who are not Jewish is enshrined in literally dozens and dozens of Israeli laws going back to the very beginning. Uh, people don't want to hear that. Um, they've been told a story about Israel, which has to do with redemption after the Holocaust, which has to do with return as, as, uh, as uh, they understand it is, is promised in the Bible. Of course, if you read the Bible and you're pious, then you believe that you're, th this return would take place at the end of days, right. not at the hands of the Irgun and Stern gang and Haganah with you know, blowing up of houses and expulsion of three quarters of a million people. That's not what the Bible says. Um, but, you know, uh, people pick and choose in what they want to believe. And uh, so there's a very powerful narrative um, which your students partake in, which argues that Palestine cannot and must not exist. For Israel to exist, Palestine cannot and must not exist. Um, and that's why you have such pushback. Uh, when I write a book called The Hundred Years War on Palestine, I'm arguing that there is such a thing as Palestine, that it was being, it was, it was subject to a, a, a war being waged by great powers and the Zionist movement, later the state of Israel, uh, that this is a settler colonial project and that what the Palestinians are doing is simply resisting this aggression 
against them and their homeland. And that all of these things. I mean, those I've just read you the title of the book and explained why the title of the book is meant to provoke, um, because every right. part of that title uh, 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 is meant to to dismantle part of this overarching set of myths. Right. I mean, I think this sort of project of erasure, right, that that um, has been quite effective. I mean, I, I think that's the, the the very sort of sad outcome of uh, reading through this book is that there's this sort of literal and figurative um, expulsion erasure of uh, Palestine and Palestinians um, that has come, if not at the behest, certainly with acting as handmaidens of great power patrons across this, this sort of hundred years. Um, one of the things that sort of came up for me is that just kind of how you start the book um, with this letter exchange uh, between one of your ancestors right. and, and Theodore Mitchell, right. um, which was which is very powerful. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Because you, you point out sure. that some lines are kind of cherry picked to sort of then demonstrate that, aha, you know, the, that even the Palestinians conceded that this was Jewish land. Uh, but obviously right. the full context and even the full reading of the letter is not given there. Right. Um, I, let me just give the background so so listeners know what we're, we're talking about. Um, in 1898, my great, great, great uncle, a man called Yusuf Dia al-Khaldi, who had previously served several times as mayor of Jerusalem uh, and had served in the Ottoman parliament of 1877-78 as deputy for Jerusalem, and who had served in different posts in the Ottoman Empire, who had taught and studied and then taught at the uh, uh, Imperial Royal University in Vienna. Uh, so he was a he was an early orientalist he was a scholar of judaism among many other things uh and he was also a man who had served as a diplomat a mayor a member of parliament uh, a governor in, in, a, in kurdistan actually he wrote the first kurdish arab dictionary arabic dictionary um he wrote a letter to theodore herzl now he knew of herzl because he had lived in vienna for many years and herzl was a prominent viennese journalist um and he wrote to him in tone of great respect which implied that he knew certainly knew his work whether he actually knew Herzl, I, I doubt. Um, and he talked to him about the Zionist project. And he said, of course, all of us, first of all, we're cousins, Jews and Muslims. Uh, second of all, he said, children of Abraham, uh, children right, of, right. Of, of, of Hagar being the Arabs and Sarah being the Jews, as both Muslims and Jews, and for that matter, Christians believe, uh, if they're believers. Um, and then he went on to say, I understand the kind of persecution to which Jews are subject in Europe. I mean, he had lived in Vienna. Uh, Vienna was at that time had as a mayor one of the most anti-Semitic figures in, in Viennese history, a man called Karl Luger, of whom there is still a statue in Vienna by the fanatical bigot. Uh, and this is the kind of atmosphere that drove Herzl to, to conceive of Zionism. And what he basically was saying, we understand why Jews would feel this way. But he then goes, and we understand your connection to the land. That's the passage that's quoted right. out of. Of course, I mean, of course you have a biblical connection. Of course, we understand that. Uh, uh, people think that Muslims don't have the same understanding of the Jewish connection to the Holy Land. Uh, there is a surah of the Quran, uh, which is called Surah Isra, which is also 
called. So did Beni Israel, this, the, 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 the chapter of the children of Israel. And it's full of references to the destruction of the temple, to the connection of David and Abraham, and so on and so forth, uh, to Palestine. So uh, Muslims have the same basic beliefs about uh, the connection of Judaism and the Jews to the land of Israel as do Christians and Jews, the same basic beliefs. So he's, he, 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 was a, he was, of course, religiously trained as well as trained in Western academic. Um, he'd studied all over. He'd studied in Istanbul in a modern university. He'd studied in a, in a Protestant missionary school in Malta. He had both a classical Islamic and a Western education uh, of the late 19th century. And he said, so we understand the connection of the Jews to this land. He said, however, there's another people here. <laughs> and that's the part. So for God's sakes, leave Palestine alone. Uh, so while he expressed sympathy for the plight of the Jewish people, he expressed sympathy, he expressed understanding of where Zionism was coming from. He said, but not here. And he described problems which, of course, all without exception uh, ultimately arose uh, for the position of Jewish populations in the region uh, in terms of a clash with the existing population. He sort of, he, he, he gestured to all of those, those outcomes. Uh, I, I then... Uh, cite Herzl's letter in response, which is a masterpiece of evasion. And I say is symptomatic of an elision of all kinds of concerns that the Palestinians have always expressed by spokespersons for Zionism. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's worth reading both, uh, both letters, actually. Right. And not cherry picking, as many people do. Right, right. So, I mean, one of the things that in, in terms of the sort of the function of that opening and then uh, another sort of major text that you cite is uh, the Jabotinsky um, uh, argument about the need for the Iron Wall and so on. Right. Um, these seem to be sort of structuring forces um, that the texts sort of take on a sort of power that then sort of I don't know, governs the vision of the Zionist state for a long time, mm -hmm. arguably, you know, I, you know, you go through the book and, and, you know, Jared Kushner is an inheritor of Japotinsky in, in various ways, you know, like, like, yeah. like that, that he's taken up the mantle. Um, so yeah, could you, actually. could you sort of talk? I never thought of that, but you're you right. know, could you talk a little bit about, you know, why is it that, because there's, there's Zionism, but then there's like Zionisms, right? There's that argument as well. There are these sort of different forms. And right. Japotinsky is obviously the most sort of muscular, aggressive, uh, exterminationist even um, uh, form of it. Why is that one uh, gained such traction? Um, or was it always sort of there? Was it always just sort of covert and it's more, and it's more sort of snarling and open now? Yeah, let me just explain why I, I give some of these texts so much importance. The chapters are organized not so much about around the wars that were waged on, on Palestine or camp phases or campaigns within, as they are on the declarations of war. So I'm looking at these texts as laying out why what happened happened. So the Balfour Declaration, if you read it carefully and then you read the Mandate for Palestine, issued by the League of Nations a couple of years later, carefully. It's, it, it lays out what is supposed to happen in Palestine and what in large measure does happen. Uh, same with the partition resolution of 1947, same with Security Council Resolution 242. Um, and so what I talk about is the intentions of the various actors, Great Britain in the first instance, um, the United States and the Soviet Union at the time of the, uh, of the passage of the partition resolution in the General Assembly in November 1947, and so forth. 
Um, and so, and, and, and in the course of that, I also talk about things said by Herzl, things said by Zev Jabotinsky. Now, Jabotinsky deserved to be identified. He was the founder of what is called the revisionist strand of Zionism, which until 1977 was a dissident minority strand. Um, it, 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 it's it's, it's uh, included, however, since then, the people who've dominated Israeli politics. Right. Uh, so Menachem Begin, uh, Yitzhak Shamir, uh, Ariel Sharon, uh, almost every prime minister of Israel, with the exception of, of a couple, uh, um, Barak and Rabin. Um, since 1977, for the past 44, whatever we're talking about years, have been followers of this revisionist strand of Zionism. So that's what you're asking about. Um, Jabotinsky was distinguished from his uh, colleagues in the Zionist leadership by a number of things. Uh, he wasn't a PR man. He wasn't sitting there selling a bill of goods, which is what many Zionist leaders did. Uh, the Zionist project is many things. It's a it's a project for settlement of Jews in Palestine. So it's a settler colonial project. It's a, a project uh, which it, it, it has always been involved in fun, a diplomatic project, finding allies abroad, without which it could not have succeeded. Without Great Britain, the implantation of the Zionist project in the decades after World War I would not have been possible, or at least certainly would have pro progressed with the success uh, that it enjoyed, and so on. But it's also a PR project from the very beginning. And one of the important things about Jabotinsky is he was no PR guy. He was honest. He was blunt. He didn't try and sell a bill of goods. He didn't try and tell the Arabs, this is good for you, which is actually what Herzl says to Yusuf Leah in his response in 1898. This is good for you. We are going to replace you in your own country, turn Palestine into a Jewish state, uh, spirit your, your, your people across the frontier. He says this in his diaries, Herzl. But this is good for you. I mean, that's PR, you know, right. uh, and, and it, it, it's something that has been under underestimated uh, in, in our appreciation of, of Zionism and, and the Zionist project and, and the state of Israel. The, the movie Exodus uh, and the book are more important than all the diplomatic statements by the Israeli foreign ministry since 1948 until today in terms of uh, impressing public opinion. Uh, and, and, you know, brand Israel, Israel, a startup nation, that kind of whitewashing of what is a, you know, discriminatory state in terms of its, some of its own citizens. It's ruled over more than five million Palestinians with complete, complete ignore, completely ignoring their rights since 1967, three generations. These things are ignored. Democratic, secular, whatever. All of these, all of these advertising slogans have been extraordinarily successful. The beauty of Zev Jabotinsky is he was blunt. He was talking to his own people and telling them the truth. We are a settler colonial project. The native population will necessarily and inevitably resist us. This happens because if we were them, we would do the same thing. Everybody does this. You know, he's, he's saying honest truths, not this is gonna be good for you. This is sugar to take the medicine. You know, to make the medicine go down. This is poisonous medicine. We know it is, but we have to win because, uh, you know, because of the imperatives that the Zionist would see in terms of the situation of Jews in Europe in particular. These were all European Jews. None of these were, were Jews from the Arab world, uh, nor Herzl, nor Ben Gurion, nor Yitzhak. I could go on and on. Yitzhak Menzvi, uh, 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 Weizmann, and so on and so forth. None of them until recent years. Uh, 
has 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 been a, a, a Mizrahi Jew, a Jew from the Arab world or from any other part of the world, than Eastern or Central or Western Europe. Um, and so Jabotinsky is blunt about the need for force. Other Zionist leaders talked about, no, you know, we have to come to terms with you. You have to understand. Let us negotiate. Negotiate our own disappearance. Palestinians were just not so stupid as to as to fall into that trap. But uh, that 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 was the line that was constantly peddled by Zionist leaders, mainly with a view to audiences abroad. See how see how conciliatory we are. We are willing to compromise. There are eighty percent of the population. We only want to take it over. <laughs> that kind of that kind of uh, of uh, I mean, of course, the numbers were never mentioned. It's going to be a Jewish state, so it's going to have a Jewish majority. As soon as we get enough immigrants, boom, they're a minority, and so on and so forth. Uh, Jabotinsky had no such illusions, and he didn't foster such illusions in his in his amongst his followers, and that's where he came up with the idea of an iron wall. Only an iron wall can prevent the res the natural, logical, inevitable resistance of the native population to a project such as ours. So he saw that Zionism was a national project, which of course it is or was. Um, but a settler colonial project. And that in response to it, there would be the natural, necessary, inevitable resistance of the native population. And, and that had to be suppressed by force. And in those years, when he was writing, the, the quote comes from a, something he wrote, I think, in 23, in the early 20s, it was clear that that force had to come from Britain. And it did. The Zionist movement could not have survived without the massive application of force by the British Empire. Um, ending in this huge suppression of a 1936-39 revolt in which one in 10 Palestinian uh, adult males were killed, wounded, imprisoned, or exiled um, by a force of over 100,000 British soldiers and policemen and auxiliaries um, employed to, to suppress the revolt. The, the Iron Wall was provided by Britain, and that's what Jabotinsky was saying. You can't do it without this force. Right, and, and it seems like successive Israeli prime ministers, um, certainly since Begin, but but arguably even before, right? That, 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 even before, that, exactly. that this is, you know, and so one of the questions that I had is, you know, you, you talk about 1917 um, and 1947 are obviously sort of key moments in this war in pa Palestine, that the Balfour Declaration mm -hmm. is effectively a declaration of war, right? right. Um, and, and as are, are the, the partition plan and so on. Um, but right. then you make an argument about 1967 that sort of is sort of a fundamentally uh, uh, a sort of hinge point that everything sort of changes, mm -hmm. both due to a realignment of Israel's sort of great power patrons, the UN right. resolution that is issued from that, and then also Palestinian popular reaction. Um, right. And you're kind of arguing that the political situation has kind of calcified since then, or if not calcified, it's sort of coasted along the same grooves etched out by 1967. Mm -hmm. Could you right. say a few words about why 1967 is so important? Sure, sure. The United States supported with the Soviets the establishment of the state of Israel. Both recognized the new state immediately. Both did nothing to prevent the destruction of an Arab state, which was also supposed to be set up according to partition resolution. They didn't want an Arab state, didn't care about it. They wanted a Jewish state. That's what they got. And uh, the fact that no provisions were made in the partition resolution and no action was taken by the United States or the great powers to prevent this infant state from being strangled in its, its cradle by Israel in collusion with Britain and, and the Jordanians um, is evidence that they didn't want it. They didn't care about it. It was, it was just a sop to the Arabs. Um, 
but in the decades thereafter, the main patrons of Israel, that is to say in the 50s and the 60s, into the 60s, are France and Britain. They are the ones that go to war together with Israel against Egypt in 1956 in the Suez War. They are the ones that provide Israel the arms that it uses to win the 56 war and the 67 war. It's mainly French planes and British and French armor and artillery that the Israeli army was using in those years. Uh, they got some weapons from the United States, but the, the cutting edge high-tech weapons, Mirage fighters and so on, so Mystere fighters in the earlier generation are French. Um, and there's a lot of British equipment as well. Um, but in 1967, you are absolutely right. It is a hinge point because this is the moment at which Cold War considerations, uh, obsession of the United States uh, leadership with the war in Vietnam, and a, a number of other things uh, lead to a fundamental shift in the American position. And the United States becomes the main patron of Israel. The United States begins to sell weapons to Israel a little earlier than that under President Kennedy. Um, but President Johnson massively increases not just the number of weapons sold or the, or the, the dollar value, but uh, the, 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 the high-grade technology starts to come. So by uh, this 1970, Israel is, is re receiving the top-of-the-line fighter, the F-4 Phantom. And in fact, uh, at a time when there was a limited production of them and they were being shot down in Vietnam, the United States was sending some to Israel. And at one point in September, August, September 1970, the United States says, we, we just, you're losing more than we can afford to replace <laughs> um, because we need them for the Army, Navy, and, uh, and, and, and Marines. Sorry, the Air Force, Navy, and Marines in, in, in Southeast Asia. Um, and I, I describe the, the lead up to the 1967 war on the basis of American diplomatic documents and also the memoirs of the Israeli official, the head of the, Meir Amit, who was the head of the Mossad at that time, and who went to meet with Secretary of Defense McNamara and President Johnson to basically get an American green light for the war. Because the, Israel had gone to war in 1956 without American approval and had been slapped down by the Eisenhower administration, which was slapping down the British and the French too for their neo-colonial uh, 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 gunboat diplomacy in a time when they were embarrassing the United States by doing this. Um, and so the Israelis didn't want to make the same mistake. They sent Amit to Washington. They said, this is what we're going to do. And at a time when the United States was talking out the other side of its mouth, telling the Arab states, please don't do anything rash. We're going to mediate. McNamara and Johnson basically approved the Israeli war plan. I describe this as in his declaration of war. It's not a formal declaration of war. It's not as overtly uh, clear as, uh, say, I would argue, the, the, the Balfour Declaration uh, or the Partition Resolution. But it is a clear indication. And then the, the, the end of this is, is the resolution that is adopted by the Security Council in the wake of the 67 war, UN Security Council Resolution uh, 242, which was adopted on the 22nd of November 1967, drafted nominally by the British representative, Lord Carradine, but actually an American-Israeli draft, which gave Israel a, a, uh, a loophole through which they drove a, a Sherman tank, uh, whereby they could keep any of the occupied territories they chose to, the wording of the declaration, and whereby all of the problems raised by the 48 war, Palestinian refugee return and compensation, Israeli expansion in the course of the 48 war, and so on and so forth, are swept under the rug. And the problem is redefined um, as land for peace. Uh, and the whole Palestinian dimension is completely expunged. So whereas UN resolutions in the 40s and the 50s talked about the Palestine question, the word Palestine and the Palestinians are absent from 242. There is a vague reference to a just solution of the refugee problem. Which refugees? What solution? What is justice? Where? How? <clears throat> completely, completely elided. 
so the Palestine problem is solved. Um, and uh, and so we are talking we're talking essentially about a uh, what I describe as a declaration of war. Um, uh, it is frankly uh, uh, an attempt by the United States to align itself completely on the Israeli position, which is that Palestine doesn't exist, which is that this is now a state to state problem of territories occupied by Israel in June 1967 which is to be resolved by the Arab states making peace with Israel and getting back some of their occupied territory. Because Israel's security, which Israelis define with a rubber band to include bombing Algiers or Tunis or Baghdad or in the future, heaven forbid, Tehran, um, this elastic concept whereby Israel can do anything it wants in the name of security is now included. Uh, so safe and secure borders. What is a secure right? Uh, not defined in, in 242. So one set of problems is is declared off limits, and another set of problems are defined as what what has to be solved by two four two. So the the language of security becomes a sort of the language by which greater expropriation can happen, right? You know that that effectively, you know, that's I mean that's that's just the sort of the the crazy thing about about, about the sixty seven war is is that suddenly something that happened within obviously living memory, but also living people who are still refugees made refugees by 47, suddenly that is meant to vanish, right? That so that the history itself is repressed and that becomes a sort of political necessity for effectively the, the logic of creating facts on the ground, right? That, that, that this um, way of sort of, I've I've heard this, and I wonder if you can sort of verify this, but but that there are sort of land laws in in the occupied territories where if they Israeli um, settlers, you know, pour concrete and things like that, that they can sort of lay claims to lands in 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 sort of more permanent ways and things like that. So that does this sort of give rise to all that? As far as I know, there are no there are no laws like that. Uh, but that is that has been the practice. Okay. Very, very few supposed quote unquote illegal settlements. I mean, they're all illegal under international law, under the Fourth Geneva Convention. An occupying power is not allowed to settle its population in occupied territory. Israel denies that it's occupied territory. They claim it's theirs. The whole land of Israel is theirs. God gave the, the, this land is our land. God gave this land to us. I mean, you start with a, a biblical title of deed, and of course, <laughs> uh, uh, legality is is determined on a sort of. A, on the level of you know the deity and and, and holy text rather than uh, international law. International law is irrelevant where God is concerned, um, and that's not the way in which the Israeli state defines it. But that's the way a lot of Israelis and certainly the settlers, many of them, the religious ones amongst them, uh, define it. Um, but yes, what happens after 1967 is that almost immediately, Israel, uh, the Israeli government, in sessions that take place right after the war. Uh, decides on a, a set of policies which involve the beginning of settlement, colonization of the newly occupied lands, um, and a, a, a magisterial delaying tactic to prevent any real serious attempt to resolve that part of the, of the issue, that is say, the, the, the issue of the occupation of territories inside Palestine. Um, Israel later on shows itself willing to bargain about land in the Sinai, for example. And even in the Golan Heights, uh, different Israeli governments were willing 
to come down from the Golan Heights, including the government headed by Yitzhak Rabin. Um, but not Palestine. Over that, the idea is procrastinate, delay, obfuscate, and settle. You know, create facts on the ground, make uh, any reversion of this territory to Arab rule and especially to Palestinian rule uh, impossible uh, by creating a whole network of, of settlements, colonies, roads, military bases, uh, uh, closed zones, uh, forest spaces, all kinds of pretexts for basically stealing land and preventing uh, anything that could possibly be a contiguous Arab-Palestinian state. Um, and that process has been going on for 50, going on 54 years now, uh, since 1967. colonial element is obviously really present not only in the settlements and the vision right. of the Zionist project, but also in kind of how it's achieved. And, mm -hmm. you know, you talk about when you were in Madrid and you talk about this sort of mythical final status talks that were, were, were sort of, you know, which have been, of course, serially postponed. Um, and and that's, that's such a colonial approach to put people always... In like in the waiting room of history, right? And that, that you're always sort of waiting to, under certain tutelage, that one day you might well grow up and be able to govern yourself. Is that what's ours is ours. What yours is, what's yours is negotiable at a later date. Right. right. So Israel has sovereignty, Israel has security, Israel has control, Israel, you know, you can, whole list of things. The Palestinians will have to wait for all of those. Things. Right. But Israel has a capital, Palestinians will have to wait, and so on and so forth. That, that's a good way of putting it in the waiting room of history. Yeah. I know that's not your expression. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah, I just coined that last week. Um, the other um, thing that I want to sort of raise is that, you know, again, I, I started with this, is that this, this work is a little bit different from many history books because your family story um, is is woven into it, and actually, you can't weave yourself out of it. Right? This, this, yeah. is, this is not some sort of you're inserting yourself into the story. You're very much in the story, and your whole family's in. The story. It's not a it's not a where's wall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to kind of miss you. Um, the and and so we talked a little bit about you know that how is what is it called the Hasbara the 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 propaganda the, propaganda, Hasbara, the yeah. PR approach that's you know very slick and 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 sophisticated. I mean, one of their uh, great achievements um, is branding or at least associating Palestinians with terrorism. Right. Um, and two questions come up with this is that when, first of all, um, this directly affected you, right? When you were in, in uh, Beirut um, and there was the invasion there and, you know, you're worried about your children, your wife, and because you're a Palestinian and suddenly you've, this label has come upon you and the Israeli army has been given effectively a sanction to create almost a free fire zone um, uh, against so-called terrorists. So that's one is the other, the other thing, question that sort of comes as a sort of more fundamental one is that what do you think about this word terrorism? Is it a useful word at all or I think I think Remy Brulan has has an argument about this that that 
you know, it's just really a word to delegitimize an opponent. It, it's 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 right. com- it's a political football. It's it's really right. does not have a sort of value. So, could you say a few words about that? Well, yes. Um, I'll talk about that, and then let me talk about the personal yeah. aspect of the book. Um, yeah, of course. Um, if Israel kills, I don't know, close to two thousand uh, civilians in bombing Gaza and shelling Gaza in uh, twenty fourteen. That's not terrorism. If Palestinians blow up a bus, that's terrorism. Um, if the United States kills civilians in attempting to kill an Al-Qaeda operative or an Islamic State operative, that's not terrorism. Uh, if Palestinians, and so on and so forth. Um, but the, I think it, it, the first thing to say is that this is an old colonial trope. When, uh, when uh, white settlers perpetrate atrocities against Indians, that's just retribution for Indian savagery, Native American savagery. When Native Americans perpetrate atrocities against white settlers, that's savagery of these people and justifies further settlement, acquisition of land, massacre of Indians, and so on. Um, so essentially, states cannot be seen as terrorists. They're not terrorists. Whatever they do is covered. Um, there's a kind of presumption of innocence. Uh, and you can't be brought before the ICC. I mean, the American response to the idea that Israel could be brought before the ICC was, that's outrageous. How could you do it? Of course, they don't want Americans brought before the ICC um, for, for under charges of, 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 of war crimes or whatever. Um, American military or American intelligence operatives. So uh, it, it is clearly part of a strategy that's much bigger than Israel or Zionism or, or what's happened in Palestine over 100 and something years. But it is a crucial, a crucial aspect of delegitimizing your opponent. I mean, the British talked about the Irish as bandits, as insurgents, as terrorists. I don't think they used the term terrorist, actually. But the, the, the language was always demeaning and delegitimizing. Uh, the violence of the British state was always just and legitimate, however indiscriminate it may have been. The language of fill in the blank, revolutionaries, Egyptian, Indian, whoever it may have been, uh, was terrorism or banditry or whatever, um, and and Israel's description of these things is is uh, is is of a piece with that, um, and again it has to be contrasted. This is why I think Jabotinsky is so important. Um, it has to be contrasted not just with the self-assertion of liberation movements that their resistance is justified, but by the admission of occasional Israelis, important Israeli leaders. Dayan made a statement once, Moshe Dayan, Minister of Defense, and Foreign Minister at different times, and uh, Chief of Staff, and, and uh, himself a person who was involved in some atrocities. Uh, he said, uh, you know, if I were Arab, I would do the same thing. I mean, you know, I would be, we would defend ourselves uh, against what we would see as, a, as, this, as this unjust imposition on our, our country and on our people. Uh, Jabotinsky says it more elegantly, elegantly and much more consistently throughout his writings. Um, and, to, and, and that's why I insist on talking in the title and in, in the course of the book uh, about Palestinian resistance. Uh, what the Palestinians are doing is resisting an invasion, a war on their land, on their people, on their, you know, uh, on their villages and towns and cities. Uh, uh, they were not carrying out random violence out of some deep anti-Semitic strain or out of some Islamic hatred of Jews. It's complete nonsense. Um, there may be anti-Semitism and there may be hatred of Jews, but that's not what's driving what's going on. What's going on is people defending their property and their land and their homeland and their families um, against a war that's been waged on them by great powers and 
Zionist project and the state of Israel now for over 100 years. Um, as far as the personal aspect is concerned, I, I, I de I, th this book constitutes a, com a complete departure from anything I have ever done before. Um, <clears throat> since I was an undergraduate, I was trained uh, in a certain historical form of rhetoric and a certain methodology. Um, you use sources in a certain way, you write in the third person, you, uh, you abstract yourself as much as possible from the narrative and so on and so forth. Um, and everything I've ever written, in, including books that were written more for a pop popular audience, you mentioned uh, uh, a couple of them, uh, were written uh, uh, in, that, in that voice. Um, e even the more, uh, even the more, as I say, popular sewing crisis or resurrecting empire, both of which are, are meant to explain things to, you know, essentially a, a, a general audience rather than an audience of specialists, um, employed this histor historical methodology. The God, the uh, God and, voice. Yeah. And, and I was under, I was, I was constantly being pressed by my son and by a cousin of mine to write something that was intended for a general audience. And it was my son who said to me, and use your own voice. I mean, you, 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 you were told things, you witnessed things, you have access to family and other uh, accounts from our family and other families, which nobody else has access to. Uh, uh, talk about them, you know, my uncle said, or my father said, or I saw, uh, in just that, you know, plain, straightforward fashion. Um, and so this is not an autobiography. This is not a, a, a memoir of any sort. What, what I do is I use materials that I have access to and accounts that I have act, had, had access to or, or, or heard um, about the people and families that I, I know to illustrate what happened. Um, <clears throat> I'm not quoting Yusuf Lia Al-Khaldi uh, because he's a member of my family, but because he had this correspondence right. with Herzl. I quote one of my uncles. Uh, not because he was my uncle, but because he was mayor of Jerusalem and exiled by the British and witnessed and experienced things, which he described in a three-volume memoir, which I have right here, um, and which you know includes all kinds of stuff, uh, which I quote not because he was again not because he was my uncle. Uh, similarly, my father tells me a story which begins a chapter right. of his meeting with King Abdullah, which I think was important, and uh, other historians agree. I mean, a friend of mine. Abishlam has used it as a to buttress an argument that he made in his wonderful book on collusion between Israel and Jordan. Um, uh, collusion across the Jordan, I think the title is. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, the book has a completely different tone. I mean, it's it, I, I, I did as much as I could to rigorously document it. There are 45 pages of footnotes. Uh, there's a great deal of new material that has nothing to do with me or the family. Um, material on the Sabranchetida massacres, material on the American role in the 1982 war and the 1967 war, um, material about uh, 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 the American role in mediation uh, with, in negotiations, secret negotiations with the PLO, which I got from a former American ambassador to Lebanon who's now passed away. Uh, so the book is full of, I think, important historical material, but uh, it's presented in a form which is meant to be easily accessible to a general audience. Right. Well, that that it certainly is. I'm I'm wondering was it hard to write this because when I was reading it, it was really painful because a lot of people you knew were assassinated. I mean, yeah. there's so many people there's this list of people that 
you know, I don't even want to think about it. It's terrifying. I I know it's not. And and it's funerals I attended in Vegas. It's so, I mean, it's, and as you point out, you know, it, this, again, this capacious categorization of terrorism, suddenly a nationalist poet is branded a terrorist and then is assassinated, right? This is not even like a fighter or something like that, or it's just, just somebody who's maybe an intellectual leader of the nationalist movement. Um, could you talk about that? I mean, it was, I mean, I can't, yeah. that, that's really, there's one thing I think historians that deal with difficult, violent histories, you know, it's difficult to write, read the documents and it's, and it's troubling and, and uncomfortable, but this is a next level, right? This is, this is people you knew, your family yeah. and so on. Yeah. Um, well, it was difficult uh, to write this book for a couple of reasons. One of them was that I was writing in a register and in a voice that I had never used before. Hmm. I mean, even in op-eds and in, in nothing I had ever written. Uh, let alone scholarly articles and books. Uh, anything else, I'd never used this register, and that was that was hard. I had help. Uh, I had an excellent editor uh, at Metropolitan Books, Riva Hockerman, a really wonderful editor who helped a lot. My my son helped a lot. Other people who read it helped a lot to to tell me, you know, don't say too much here, or this is the wrong voice, or whatever. But for the reason you're asking about. Um, it wasn't so much painful as it as it. It, it, it angered me at times to go back over these things. I mean, they're in the past. Uh, these are not things that have happened in most cases in the last few years. Um, I left Beirut in 1983. I mean, I've been back many times, but the, but much of what I talk about um, uh, is over, over 30 years old um, and, and sometimes more. I mean, I met Hassan Kanafani a few times uh, in the 60s and early 70s. Um, I knew him not very well. Um, but yes, I describe him in the, and then I describe his, his murder uh, together with his 16 year old niece in a car bomb that the Israelis planted. Um, and so, yeah, going back over that, it, it makes you angry. Um, especially when you read an account like that of Ronan Bergman in a book entitled Rise and Kill First, where he talks about literally the killing of probably thousands of Palestinians, cold blooded assassinations, certainly many hundreds. Uh, perhaps thousands, probably many hundreds. Um, and, and, and as far as I could tell, largely accurate, mm -hmm. using an enormous range of sources. I mean, the, the, the man, he writes for the New York Times, by the way, he's ubiquitous in the New York Times, Ronan Bergman, his byline, he's got the most quoted byline I've ever seen, except maybe David Sanger and a couple, you know, the national security correspondent, the White House, government. maybe they get better uh, exposure in the Times to, than Bergman. Um, he clearly is embedded in the intelligence community. If he's not a member of it, he was. And if he wasn't, he's so close to them that they'll tell him things that they will never tell anybody else. And as far as I can tell, much of it checks out. I, I've not found, I found a few mistakes, but so you read that stuff and you know some of the people that are mm -hmm. being discussed. And that can be, that can, it, it makes you angry, essentially. Um, this is not the only national liberation movement that suffered. I mean, Samora Machel, uh, uh, South African leaders, Algerian leaders, where the French are now admitting the murder of right, Algerian right. intellectuals, lawyers, poets, uh, uh, the assassination. Uh, General Osares threw the lawyer they just described, the status respond from the sixth floor window right. to kill him. Uh, so, you know, th this happens. This is what colonial powers do.
this is what settler colonialism is. You have to destroy not just the name, not just the presence of the indigenous population. You have to destroy their leaders. You have to kill them. Uh, or in the case of Israel, many in, in frequently in prison. So you have probably part, a very large part of the elite of Palestinian society, uh, including people who have never used a weapon or used violence in their lives, elected members of the Palestinian a legislative council, uh, leaders of political groups, student leaders, uh, union leaders, uh, in administrative detention. No trial, no evidence, <laughs> extendable indefinitely. Uh, and others have been tried and found guilty in kangaroo courts, Israeli kangaroo courts, military courts. Um, <clears throat> and some of them do have blood on their hands, of course. Uh, are they terrorists? Well, you know, it, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. If the general who ordered the killing of 15 to 1,500 to 2,000 Palestinians in Gaza is a terrorist or a war criminal or whatever appellation you want to use, whether these are war crimes or crimes against humanity, then you can apply that to somebody who set off a bomb in a pizza parlor. Um, and the idea of intentionality here really, which, which Israelis always, they did, they're trying to kill civilians. So the guy who killed 1,500, 1,800 Palestinians in, in attempting to kill a few hundred militants was not trying to kill civilians. I mean, it, 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 it's a distinction without a difference. And with the numbers, I, I try and do this again and again. The, the number of Israeli civilians killed before, during, and after the 2014 war on Gaza, for example, you can count on the fingers of two hands. And we're talking about 1,500 to 2,000 Palestinians, including 500 children. Is proportionality not an element here in talking about terrorism? Of course it's not. These guys are terrorists. Whatever they do, they're terrorists. Their nurses are terrorists. Their doctors are terrorists. Their intellectuals are terrorists. They're all terrorists. They come from a terrorist culture, and so on and so forth. And these guys are pure as the driven snow, however many hundred children they kill. Well, you know, those double standards are just not morally acceptable. They're not legally acceptable either, except, again, the big fat thumb of great powers and of countries like Israel is on the, the scales of justice all too often. Right. And so to wrap up, let's think about that sort of going forward here. Um, we've got a new administration, you know, you, you, end, mm -hmm. you end your book talking about the Trump administration in some ways is not, I mean, it, it is a departure, obviously, you know, it, it throws away decades of American, at least posturing of, of being uh, a, a neutral interlocutor um, and right. basically says, no, no, we're, we're not neutral at all. Um, and, and we're sending Jared to, to do all this stuff. Um, but the Biden administration, um, they've basically said that issues in the Middle East are kind of not their priority, right? right. So what what do you say to them? What do you, you know, how, how you know, you end, end your book in, in with a very sort of concrete, if idealistic aim, right, about, about sort of legal, social, political equality for the two groups right. that, that are now sort of fully grown national entities, right? Um, that, you know, however they maybe came to be, they're both there now, you have to deal with that fact. Um, what would you say to, and you, you obviously know a lot of these diplomats, what, what um, and I was just as an aside, I was very interested to hear that the whole relationship that you had with Ryan Crocker, um, that, that um, you know, that when he Long since retired. Yeah, right, right. But, um, you know, what, what advice would you give to, say, 
a, an American diplomat who would want to put this on the table, even though the the powers that be have sort of deemed it uh, of secondary importance? Well, firstly, the, the people to talk to are not the diplomats. The people to talk to are the, the politicians. Israel in the United States is a domestic political issue. It's not a foreign policy issue. Iran is not a foreign policy issue. Iran is a domestic political issue. Uh, the president has to deal with the Republican Party, which is to the right of the Likud. <laughs> and he has to deal with the hawks in his own party, who are eh, a little bit to the right, or just about where Likud is. Uh, they're interventionists. They believe in force. They believe in American exceptionalism. They believe in American forever wars. They believe in an American presence everywhere. They believe that Israel is an ally and so on and so forth. I mean, they subscribe to every um, knee-jerk uh, myth uh, in the book. Uh, and so it's a domestic political issue. Um, and so you, you don't want to be talking to the diplomats or the people in the NSC. Um, ben Rhodes, who served in a couple of capacities in the Obama administration in a podcast with Peter Beinart. Uh, was blunter than anybody that I've ever seen talk about this because he was not a legislator. There are there are former legislators, Charles Percy and Pete McCloskey and other people who've talked about the pressures that come upon legislators. Um, he talks about the pressures that came upon the White House, uh, on him, on his colleagues, uh, in the NSC, in the in the in the, in the domestic policy and and all, all through the administration, uh, not to do anything Israel didn't want not to, 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 to be fair and even-handed in dealing with the Palestinians. And he, he goes in, in, into extraordinary detail in this, in this podcast, which I recommend everybody listen to. I hope they listen to yours. I hope they listen to this thing of Peter's. Uh, it was uh, broadcast sometime in February, I think, mid or early February. Um, so it's a domestic issue. What would I say to them? Um, I mean, there was a conversation among some Palestinian community leaders and Tony Blinken, and he didn't give an inch. This is long before the election. He didn't give an inch. Uh, the only thing he said was, we're against BDS, but we believe in freedom of speech. And there are several things the administration has done since they've come into office that I think may cast that assertion into question, their, their adoption of a very problematic definition of anti-Semitism and the position that the uh, new UN ambassador, the US ambassador of the United Nations, Permanent representative of the United States in the United Nations has made about BDS. Call that into question. Um, I don't think you can talk to them, those guys. Uh, I mean, you can talk to them about low level stuff. The basic issue has to be fought out politically in Congress and in dealing with the president, the vice president, and the top policymakers. And that is to argue to them that it's neither in the interest of Israel nor of the Israeli people or the United States, but most importantly, doesn't serve the United States in the Middle East to continue to take a policy that is entirely pro-Israel. Um, the Biden administration uh, reminds me a lot of the Labor Party in Israel, by contrast with the Trump administration. That reminds me a lot of Zeb Jabotinsky and the revisionists, who basically believe in power, and we're going to stick it to you, and we're going to tell you what we're doing, and if you don't like it, tough luck. I mean, that's what Jared was basically saying to the Palestinians right. with his deal of the century. Uh, this administration is going to clothe the bitter medicine, uh, or, or how should I put it, uh, dilute the bitter medicine with sugar. But it's the same bitter medicine. Uh, do Palestinians have the right to complete sovereignty? No. Does the United States accept the idea that Palestinians should control entry and exit into their country if there is a two-state zone? No. Does the United States expect that the Palestinians will be able to decide who is a citizen of Palestine in a two-state? No. 
they won't let refugees in. In other words, even to the Palestinians, I could go. I could go down the list. Is Palestinian security on the same level as Israeli security? No. Uh, is the United States prepared to do anything to reverse 53 years of Israeli concrete being poured to prevent a, a contiguous sovereign Palestinian state? No. Will the United States stop funding settlements via uh, uh, 501c3s funded by people like Jared Kushner and David Friedman? The, 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 respectively, the bankruptcy lawyer and the son-in-law of the former president. No. Uh, so the United States has funded and, and, and given the guns to protect settlement, the settlement process, which makes a Palestinian state impossible. And it talks about a two-state solution. I mean, give me, give me Jared <laughs> rather than Thomas Lincoln as far as this, this, this hypocritical rhetoric is concerned. If you want a two-state solution, you do things to make a two-state solution possible, like rolling back settlement, like telling Israel you will be punished for existing settlements, let alone naughty, naughty, naughty if you establish new ones, while we continue to let you take 501c3 tax-deductible contributions to so-called charitable organizations like settlement groups in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. So. Um, I have no optimism as far as the Biden administration is concerned. They're going to change things at the margins. Uh, they may roll back uh, a number of Trump administration policies, but not change the fundamentals, which are uh, for the United States to, if it, if, it, if it sincerely believes in a two-state solution, to take active measures to ensure that a two-state solution is possible. Uh, the United States is currently taking active measures to prevent a two-state solution in practice. If you give them guns to protect settlements, if you allow tax-free money to go to settlements, then you are complicit. This is why it's an American, as I argue that 1982 and even 1967 in some measure can be seen not just as Israeli wars, but as, as Israeli-American wars. This is an Israeli-American settlement pro set, uh, process of colonization. It would not be possible without American diplomatic support in the Security Council or in the ICC uh, or without, without American money and American weapons. So to point to your, you know, one of the words in the subtitle, which is resistance, um, that would then resistance to that. Do you see any sort of glimmers of hope in terms of popular resistance? I mean, one way to sort of maybe gauge it, and you've been teaching this stuff for a, a long time, is that do you see a difference in terms of the students coming at you these days in terms of their politics on, on this subject? Um, and, yeah. and any soundings in sort of public life and popular culture that that maybe are not like many things are at odds with the the standard political line by the politicians but you know anything anything that that you seem see some hope in yes on some levels the floodgates are bursting you can no longer do what for many generations it was possible to do to suppress any mention of palestine um in the cultural realm film theater novels, memoirs. Uh, there's just a flood of stuff that is coming out that normalizes and naturalizes Palestine and Palestinians. And that, I mean, that, that was happening with Israel for generations, that Israel was normalized and naturalized. They are like us. We are them. They are us. Uh, you know, we're pioneers. They're pioneers. We're settlers. They're settlers. We're, we're, we had a colonial period. They had a colonial period, and so on. Um, and that, that, is a, that is a sea change. I mean, I keep Books keep coming over the transom to me. If the publishers are publishing them, they're making money. There are readers out there. Uh, memoirs, plays, uh, novels, dozens and dozens of books a year are being published on Palestine. 
Now, I don't know if they have as big a readership as the kind of schlock that's published about Israel. Probably, I'm sure they don't. But this just wasn't happening. Uh, uh, my parents described to me how if a book came out that was pro Palestinian, it would disappear. It would disappear from library shelves. You couldn't buy it. It just didn't exist. It was never reviewed. Uh, for generations, this was the case. Uh, it's not, no longer the case. Um, the second thing is that there is a change among younger people in the Jewish community, in other minority, among minority communities, among college students especially, um, such that people are questioning and critical and knowledgeable in ways that they were not 30 years ago. I mean, I, I came back to the States in the, in the mid-'80s. I started teaching again in the United States. I started teaching in the United States in the mid-'80s. And, you know, there were, there, were, there were some students who were questioning and open and interested, even then, when I started teaching uh, back in the States. Um, but nothing like you have today. Nothing, nothing. Um, in spite, and, and this has created a ferocious backlash, legal backlash, uh, vast amounts of money, hot and cold running lawyers, uh, institution after institution devoted to shutting down any discussion of Palestine by calling it anti-Semitic, by tarring it with the terrorist brush, you know, all kinds of outlandish, ridiculous. There's a, I just was reading about something that's being done to the Students for Justice in Palestine at UCLA by some well-funded right-wing Zionist organization. Uh, th this is a mark of how successful uh, uh, advocacy around Palestine has been, how open-minded and critical a lot of students are. I mean, we the students at Columbia by two-thirds vote, almost two-thirds vote, passed a divestment resolution. Students at Barnard did the same thing. Students at Brown did the same thing. Students at University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign did the same thing. Majority votes on American college campuses. And if you dissected them, there weren't a bunch of Arabs and minority students who voted in favor. There were just ordinary white kids, Jewish kids, black kids, Arab, everybody. I mean, two thirds. Um, and you look at the organizations, some were Jewish, some were Arab, some were mixed, some were, you know, African-American, whatever, um, that, are, that are supporting these initiatives. The last thing I would say, well, two other things I would say in terms of, 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 of signs of change. For the first time uh, since Woodrow Wilson, there is a body, a minority, but nevertheless a body, uh, within the American political sphere, which is open-minded on the issue of Palestine, and, and at least willing to consider being critical about Israel. Uh, a couple dozen members of, of the House have sponsored a resolution. Uh, Betty McCollum of um, Minneapolis, she represents a district in Minnesota. Uh, to prevent Israeli abuse of Palestinian children in detention. I mean, it's, it's, nothing could be more uncontroversial, um, you would think. Uh, the, the lobby, of course, the, the Israel lobby is ferociously opposed to it. Um, but she had two, two dozen co-sponsors on the measure. Uh, all of them, were, by the way, were, were opposed by people who were supportive of Israel. All of them won re-election. And another dozen or so people who've been elected in this current Congress that was elected in November Jamal Bowman and a bunch of other people in this state and in Illinois and in other places. Uh, Cory Bush, uh, uh, what's her name, Marie, I'm forgetting her name, in Illinois, suburb of Chicago, and so on. Um, are all, are all you know, have the same orientation. And you have a bunch of senators head, headed by the heroic Bernie Sanders, uh, Van Hollen of Michigan, and a couple of others, um, who are willing to stick their heads above the parapet. You never had that before. This is, this is unprecedented. And you could see it at the Democratic Convention of 2016 and of 2020. Uh, uh, the, the, the base of the, and the polling is consistent with 
this. There's, there's significant polling showing that the grassroots of the Democratic Party has moved to a position much more critical of Israel than the leadership and much more open uh, to Palestinian rights. So that's an important, the, the leadership has not changed. The money that the party collects has not changed. It's all pro-Israel. The leadership without exception, Tom Perez, Schumer, Pelosi, the president, the vice president, every single person at the time, the Clintons, and so on. All of these people uh, uh, subscribe to the conventional version that Israel is virtuous and the Palestinians are not such good people. Or even if they're okay people, they're, they, they, they're, they have to be considered you know, after Israel uh, in subordination to whatever it is that Israel wants. They won't put it that way, but that's what it means. So the leadership is in one place, the money is in one place, the, the powerful faction that dominates the party is in one place, but the grassroots and a very large number of elected representatives now, a minority, but in large number, um, are, 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 are at least open-minded on this issue. The last thing I'll say is that young people in Palestine are absolutely fed up with the bankruptcy of the Palestinian leadership. And this is a really good sign. Mm -hmm. um, BDS represents that element of civil society that is impatient with the incompetence, the blindness, the grasping, self-seeking uh, a, a desire to preserve their power of the Fatah and the, and the, and the Hamas leaderships in Ramallah and in Gaza. Uh, people are utterly, kids especially, are utterly fed up. Older people are more cautious, more conservative. Uh, but they're a minority of Palestinian society. Right. The younger people are an overwhelming majority. It's a young society. Um, and, you know, there are all kinds of currents. I'm not suggesting that there's going to be a change soon or tomorrow. Uh, but change is going to come um, because this this level of incompetence and bankruptcy, uh, the strategic blindness of, of, of the Palestinian leadership. I mean, the Palestinian national movement is in, in a terrible state. It's not just divided. It's 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 going around in circles. It has absolutely no idea what 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 it wants besides staying in power and enjoying the benefits of the Palestinian Authority and of their foreign backers, whether it's Iran or the United States, whether it's you know the EU or Turkey, whether it's whoever it may be who's, who's funding their, their BMWs and their Audis, uh, uh, putting their kids through expensive European and American uh, graduate schools. Um, so so th there's, there's a lot of pressure from below. Uh, I'm not suggesting that's going to lead to an eruption. I'm suggesting that sooner or later you're going to have leadership change and a little more clarity as far as as far as um, strategy and tactics, uh, than than has than has been the case until until it is the case now and has been for a long time. Really, since the in the eighties or nineties, the Palestinian national movement has been wandering uh, in the wilderness uh, without a clear idea of what it wanted. It thought it wanted a Palestinian state. It tried to achieve that at Oslo. It failed. Oslo was designed not to produce a Palestinian right. state, and it, it has achieved that objective resoundingly. Uh, it's time for a rethink of all of that. Well, Rashid, thank you so much. Uh, the book is awesome. Everybody should read it. Um, and, you know, I could talk to you all day about this. Uh, literally every single chapter of the book has got so much in it. So, but thanks again for taking the time. A pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. This is one of the best. I've done dozens and dozens of these. This is one of the best I've done. Glad to hear it. Thank you. Okay, so 
I've known Rashid Khalidi for a long time, uh, and I've read a bunch of his stuff, and I'm not just kind of just shamelessly promoting him here, but for those of you who haven't read about this history, um, but obviously heard about it, if you're going to read one book on this, I really recommend you read this book, The Hundred Years War on Palestine. It's amazing. Um, It's very powerful. It's very sad. Um, But... uh, you not only get the history of this conflict, it's basically a history of, you know, the Cold War, the aftermath of the Cold War, the collapse of imperialism. I mean, there's so much in there. Um, so it's 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 a one book education in a lot of ways. Um, so, yeah. And and as you heard from him just now, uh, he's got a lot to say um, and he knows his stuff. That's it for this week. Um, and... Yeah, we'll see you next week, and hopefully Tony will be back by then. All right, take care, everybody.